0: Good morning. Welcome to Parkway. My name is Jared Lawson. I will pray for us, and then we will begin with our teaching on evangelism. Father, uh, we pray as we continue to walk through this semester of uh, how to apply truth once we know it to our daily lives. I pray that as we look at evangelism this morning, that whether we are gifted with evangelism, whether we are the most extroverted of extroverts or the most introverted of introverts, we would uh, evangelize. Whether that is a litter labor person we meet or after long relationships built with neighbors, I pray that we would, as a result of knowing you and loving your son, we would declare the only hope of this world, which is salvation found only in your son. So I pray that you would do that in our hearts, you would stir up a desire to evangelize. Maybe we've gotten complacent. Maybe we've never evangelized in our lives. I pray that we would not feel uh, unnecessary guilt, but rather an energy from your spirit to preach the gospel of your son. I pray that in the name of your son. Amen. So we've been walking through uh, applied theology. That's this semester, applied theology. Today, we're going to look at Uh, personal evangelism. That's the title. And I've said this with several things, with prayer and with missions. My goal is not to guilt you into evangelizing more. My goal is uh, simply to show the place of evangelism in the Christian life. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, what place does evangelism, uh, what role does evangelism have in following Jesus and and along with that show the joy of Evangelism. Jesus tells his disciples, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's a, that's a high privilege. As the Father sends the Son to live the perfect life, die the death that we deserve, pay our penalty and bring us into his family, so the Son is sending us to declare that good news to the world. That is a humbling, joyous thing. So that's my, my heart is to show Uh, What does that mean for us as believers and hopefully get a taste of uh, that high privilege that we've been called to? So we're going to look at five questions. Our outline today is five questions. What is evangelism? Who should evangelize? What is this good news that we preach? What is it that we are evangelizing, that we are sharing? How should we evangelize? That'll be the practical section. That'll be the longest section. And then why should we evangelize? So what is evangelism? Who should evangelize? What is the good news we preach? How should we evangelize? And why should we evangelize? So first, what is evangelism? I have several definitions there in your notes. There's no one definition, so I gave you a variety. I'll read that first one from Max Stiles. Evangelism is teaching or heralding or proclaiming or preaching the gospel that is the message from God that leads to salvation with the aim, with the goal or the desire to persuade. So evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade or convince or convert someone to Christianity. Now, how does that differ from missions? We made, I made this distinction when we taught on missions a couple weeks ago. Missions is the sending that you can do it so that you can do evangelism so it's you being sent out you leaving where you are to go and preach the gospel to evangelize so missions is the sending evangelism is what you do once you've been sent Okay, so we looked at Paul, all throughout Acts, goes on his missionary journey. So he's sent out from Antioch, and he goes, and once he gets to the place he's going, he evangelizes. He declares the gospel for the purpose of turning others to Jesus. So missions is the sending. evangelism is what you do once you get to where you've been sent. And the biggest question about evangelism uh, for us, for us Reformed folk, us who believe in the sovereignty of God, is how does evangelism work with the sovereignty of God? If God is in control of everything, we have this question come up with prayer as well. What's the point of praying if God is in control of absolutely everything? And so similarly, if God has elected people to salvation, chosen those whom he would save, what is the point of evangelism, of going? If he's gonna save who he's gonna save anyway? And quite simply, the answer is God has designed it. God has sovereignly designed that salvation Sinners, rebels, those who don't trust in him, those who are in rebellion against him, would come to know and would come to trust his son through our proclaiming of the gospel. In the same way that God has sovereignly designed it that your prayers would move him to action... Or as Robert Murray McChain says, prayer moves him that moves the universe. God has also sovereignly designed it that sinners would repent and come to know him through you declaring the gospel of his son. So I have several verses here in Acts that kind of shows this tension. So Paul is going in Acts 13. and When the Gentiles heard this, when Paul had evangelized, he had preached salvation in Jesus. When they heard this, Notice what it says here. They began rejoicing and glorifying God, uh, or glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So you see, Paul preached the gospel, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 18, 9 through 10. The Lord said to Paul, Paul's in uh, Corinth He's had some persecution all throughout this missionary journey. He was beaten in Thessalonica, had to run away. He was mocked in Athens, and he's in Corinth, and it's not going that well in Corinth either. And the Lord comes in one night and says this. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, evangelizing. There it is. Go on speaking, preaching the good news, and do not be silent. Look at verse 10. For I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. Notice this. For I have many... In this city, who are my people. Notice that. There's several in Corinth that I've elected to salvation, so don't run away, don't be discouraged, go on preaching. There's many here who need to hear the gospel you're proclaiming and come to know and trust my son. So you see that tension there of God's sovereignty, yet in his good design, through our proclaiming of the gospel, people will trust his son. And this is the pattern you see all throughout Acts. You see it in Acts 2. 41, Peter preaches the first sermon in the Christian church. Acts 2, 41 says this. "Uh, So those who received his word, again, there's the the preaching. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 4, 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains in the temple, uh, captain in the temple and the Sadducees came up to them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming, Uh, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of, that was believed, cut out. You we're like, what did he say? Believe, many had heard the word believed, and the number of men came about 5,000. So you see this over and over and over again. People preaching, evangelizing. I also have Acts 8 there for you. Evangelizing, and then conversions happen after, all throughout the book of Acts. And we get a summary of this In Romans 10, 13 through 17, this picture of God redeeming through our evangelism. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Notice this. How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach Unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. So that's what is evangelism proclaiming the gospel with the hope of turning those who do not trust in Him, do not believe in Him, those who are in rebellion against God, turning them to Jesus Christ, their only hope of salvation. What is the gospel? Second, or sorry, what is evangelism? Second, who should evangelize? There is often this idea, I don't know if it's because we grew up in the Billy Graham era where there are literally professional evangelists who do the preaching and then people walk the aisles or I don't know what's caused it, but there's this idea that evangelism is for the skilled, the trained professionals, not for me, not for the lay people, right? So there are professionals. There are Billy Grams in the world. There, are, uh, there is even a gift of evangelism we see in Ephesians 4.11 and Acts 21.8. But the call to evangelize is something given to all believers. It's something given to all Christians, all disciples of Jesus. It's actually a part of our very identity as followers of Jesus that we would be preaching about our Savior. Mark 1.17, Jesus giving the call to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To follow Jesus is to act out in declaring salvation in him, to evangelize. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, Paul speaking here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. So if your identity is in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us to himself. And look at this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. If you are a Christian, you are you are an ambassador of Christ. If you are a new creation, if you've been reconciled, you've been entrusted, you've been handed the ministry of reconciliation, and you are an ambassador of the Christ who reconciles. It's a part of your identity as a Christian. Another piece of your identity is that you are a witness of that Savior of Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. You'll often hear evangelism called witnessing. This is where we get this idea from. You're witnessing about this Savior that has brought you in to himself. And as his people, lastly, we are Controlled by the love of Christ. You see this again in Paul uh, in Second Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this: that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. And was raised. If you are in Christ, if you've been brought into salvation that comes from him, you are controlled by the love of Christ because he has died and has been raised. Salvation has been offered to the world. So that's a piece of our identity as following Jesus. Not only that, that wasn't enough. We've also been sent out by Jesus himself. We've been commissioned by Jesus. Matthew 28, we'll see this in, I don't know. 20 years when we get to this point of Matthew. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John Stott, uh, one of the most famous Preachers in, in recent memory says this about Matthew 28: "This commission, this great commission, is binding upon every member of the whole church. Every Christian is called to be a witness to Christ in the particular environment in which God has placed him. Further, although the public ministry of the word is a high office, private witness, or personal evangelism has a value in which, in some respects, surpasses even that of preaching. Since the message can be adapted more personally. What he's essentially saying is, you know, your neighbor, your coworker can come and hear Jeff and I preach. That's great, but we don't know them like you know them. We don't have the relationship like you do. We don't know their struggles. They can hear something declared from the scriptures. That's great. You know their, their deepest longings, maybe not their deepest, but some of them, if you have a relationship with them, you know their struggles. You can evangelize to them better than we can from this stage. Okay, so commissioned every believer. We also see this in 1 Peter 3. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look at this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with with gentleness and respect. So Peter's saying, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. In those moments when people come and why are you in an anxious world, why do you seem to have a peace that surpasses all understanding? Not that they would perfectly quote the Bible in their question. Always be ready because of Christ. Always be ready to give a witness of the hope that is in your heart. So we've been, it's, it's our identity and we've been commissioned to evangelize. And again, you see... Acts, as the church is spreading, as it is going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it is not only the apostles doing the preaching. It's not just the professionals. We see in texts like Acts 8, 3 through 4 that it's normal Christians, right? It's not the professionals. It's everyone. Acts 8, 3 through 4. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and uh, committed them to prison. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As Paul is arresting just any Christian he can find, they're running away from him. And as they're running away to different cities, that's actually how God is spreading the gospel through suffering, through persecution. Everyone in the church is preaching the gospel. So what is evangelism? Preaching the gospel with the hope of turning sinners to Christ, unbelievers to Christ. Who should evangelize? All believers, all followers of Jesus are called to evangelize. All believers are made ambassadors of their Savior. So what is evangelism? Who should evangelize? And then thirdly, what is the good news that we share? When we open our mouth, what comes out? Okay, What is the message? What is the gospel, rather, that we evangelize? Max Stiles again says this, we must get the message right. After all, ambassadors don't have the freedom to change the message. Their job is to deliver it accurately. So if that's our job, what is the message? Romans 10, we see Paul say, you know, he's quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel simply means good news. So what is that good news? A couple of verses before, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Will be saved. That there is salvation from our sin. If you've gone through the Parkway membership class, you have or scanned our website, as all faithful members do, you'll see our definition. Tim talks about this extensively in that in that class. Our definition of the gospel of the kingdom. I have it written there. Is this? The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin scarred world back to rights by reestablishing His reign and his rule, i.e. his kingdom, over the world through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of his eternal son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit with the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace unto the glory of the triune God. Okay, that's our summary of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, We'll talk about this more the next section is how should we evangelize. That paragraph doesn't have to come out of your mouth every time you are like, oh, someone's sad. Maybe I could preach the gospel. Hello, neighbor. The gospel of the... You know, you don't have to say this exact paragraph, but a kind of a helpful summary. You know, you'll hear about the Romans Road, things like that. A helpful summary of kind of the key elements to be looking for or to to make sure you articulate when you're preaching the gospel. You maybe have heard this before is... Uh, four things, God, man, Christ, and then a response, okay? God, man, Christ, response. So who is God, the holy, perfect creator that we were made for, that, we deserve, or that he, who deserves all glory and all of our praise and all of our lives? Who are we, people created in the image of God, meant to serve him and live in perfect fellowship with him, yet we have rebelled? sin, right? We are sinful. We are in rebellion against this holy God. But God has, because of his great love for the world, John 3, 16, sent his son, right? So God, man, Christ, Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? His perfect life. Though we spoil everything God gave us, Right, the perfect life we were meant to live, we don't, and so he lives it on our behalf. The wrath hanging over our heads that we deserve, he takes in our place. He is raised victorious over sin and now offers us in himself the gift of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then lastly, with this reality in front of us, holy God, sinful man, but a way a merciful God who sent his son, what should we do? Our response, that we repent, we turn from our sin, and we trust in that Savior. That's the gospel we're evangelizing. Of course, there are many, many other things in theology that you can learn and deepen in this walk with the Lord after being reconciled, but this is uh, kind of the key element you're looking for, okay? Who God is, who man is, who we are. Christ, who, uh, who has made a way to salvation and offers us that salvation and how we respond to that offering of salvation. So we're about to talk about the practical how-to, but before we do that, I want to make sure that that is evangelism. Okay, That is, that is what we say, God, man, Christ, response. You, don't, you can't just say, you know, Jesus loves you and think you've done evangelism. That might be good to say in a particular situation, that leads you to further say it, but if you've never told, if you're never talking about sin, if one of those four is kind of left out, you haven't fully done evangelism. If you say, God is holy, his son came because he loves you, so trust in him, what have you left out? The whole reason you need that son to, to come and redeem you. see that. If you think, you know, man is generally good, it's gonna be difficult to preach the gospel because if we're great, you know, as Jesus would say, the sick or the, the healthy, don't need a physician. It's those who are sick that know they need a doctor to come and save them. You see that. So those four things, that isn't, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a nice paragraph of when you speak, say all these things, but that's a helpful summary of kind of the essential elements. So what is the good news that we share This gospel that God created the whole world, we, instead of glorifying him, rebelled against him, but because he is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, sent his son to live perfectly on our behalf and bring us into the divine life. If we are to turn, repent of our sin and accept the the gospel of salvation, that we can know God, we can be reconciled to the living God. So, fourth question, the practical big section how should we evangelize? Um, so I got 10 things here. Again, not exhaustive, just 10 things I thought were helpful. There's certainly more. Uh, quick note, we're going to talk extensively about how to uh, uh, disciple your kids. Okay, so this, the context of my teaching here is mainly for unbelieving adults that are not in your immediate home. You will evangelize to your kids uh, because we are, you know, Uh, Baptists, right? We believe in believers' baptism. We don't just assume that kids growing up in the home have salvation. They need to come to grips with their own sin, but we will talk about that in a later teaching. So 10 things uh, that are not exhausted, but I think might be helpful for how we should evangelize. Number one, prepare. Prepare to evangelize. Prepare to proclaim the gospel. So this is all before you actually open your mouth and speak. So first thing, Pray. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunity. Remember from a few weeks ago, God is the one who is on mission. God is far more concerned for your neighbors to come to know the Lord than you are. He's far more concerned for your unbelieving family members to come to trust in Jesus than you are. So pray to him that he would lay out uh, opportunities in your daily life. If you're in that season where you're like, I'm just so busy, I've got All these things that God has called me to work and, you know, kids' soccer games or whatever, pray that God would just put people in your path that you could preach the gospel to. And if you say, but I'm terrified because I'm super introverted or I'm just extroverted and scared, pray for boldness. Look at Acts 4. This is as the church is being beaten and persecuted for preaching the gospel. When they were released, meaning released from their uh, punishment, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, now, Lord, look upon their threats. Those trying to stomp out our witness, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. There's their prayer. Let us keep preaching with boldness. Don't let these threats, don't let this fear keep our mouths shut. You, we're scared. You give us passion and boldness to keep preaching the gospel. Verse thirty. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see that fear is a normal reaction to going out into a world that hates Jesus and declaring that he is Lord over other people's lives. It's a reaction to the early church, to the apostles as they're being beaten. So they pray for boldness. They don't say, well, I'm scared. I guess I won't do this. They say, I'm scared. I'm going to turn to a God who is sovereign. I'm going to turn to the maker of the heavens and the earth and ask him to give me a supernatural boldness to keep preaching the gospel of salvation in his son. And he does... And they do. And we see, again, thousands continue to come into the church in the book of Acts. So prepare by praying for boldness, praying for opportunity. Prepare by knowing the gospel. Again, know what is the gospel that you preach. Study the word. Meditate on the word. Prepare uh, by your devotional life. Uh, your love for Jesus, your devotional life, your love for God will fuel your evangelism. Matthew twelve thirty four out of the abundance of... Of the heart, the mouth speaks. You will share what you love. You already do. Every parent in this room, is sho- me included, is showing pictures of their kids to people who don't care. I, when I'm writing sermons, I put a Harvey analogy in there. I know you don't really care. I don't care that you don't care because Harvey's the sweetest kid in the world, and I'm gonna shove it in your face because I love him. And so just. Flows out of my heart, right? I give like messy soccer analogies. None of you have watched soccer. This is Texas. Are you kidding me? But I love messy. And so I'm gonna give you an analogy that you don't understand just because I just can't help it, right? What you love will spring out of your heart. Your favorite movies, I guarantee you, you evangelize those to other people. Your favorite music, you force people to listen to, right? What you love will simply flow out of your heart. Glenn Scrivener says this, Think of the sports fan uh, converted in his team, uh, covered in his team's merchandise, walking up to a sta- stadium. He is grinning from ear to ear, sharing with anyone who will hear the, unser- uh, the unsearchable riches of his team. How does he do it? In his heart, he has honored his team as holy. He is, he's commenting on 1 Peter here where Peter says, honored the Lord as holy, be ready to give a defense. He's honored his team as holy. Think of the office colleague, holding forth unpopular opinions. Star Wars is terrible, they say. Uh, Comic Scanned is highly underrated. Nickelback is actually a terrific band. They have set apart a conviction in their heart, and it overflows into words. In these everyday examples, people have managed, notice this, people have managed to overcome the fear of unpopularity, and they have instead been centered on a greater passion, and the passion flows forth. This is the answer for Christians fearful in evangelism. If you want to have more boldness in your evangelism, fall more in love with the Lord you are evangelizing. It will come out of your heart. It already does with all the other things you love. You will share the greatest object of your affection. C.S. Lewis says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes The enjoyment. It is in, uh, sorry, it's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at a turn at the end of the road upon uh, some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. If you truly taste and see that the Lord is good, you will long for others to taste and see. So preparing for evangelism starts with your devotional life, your love for the Jesus that you preach. Prepare, number one. Number two, contextualize the gospel. This is big, especially in our Bible Belt circles. Contextualize the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, this is Paul speaking, to the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. that I may share with them in its message so, or in its uh, blessings. So here we're talking about methods, not the message, okay? The message never changes. We're talking about changing your methods based on where you are, the time where, you're, where you are, the, the geographical place where you are. So you'll need to, first of all, contextualize the gospel to your culture. We live, for instance, as an example, in the Bible Belt. How many churches did you pass this morning coming to this church? Probably several. This is an area where it's not abnormal to believe in God's existence, right? This isn't France. We don't need to convince people that God exists. They're like, sure. But this is the Bible Belt where most people have a radical misunderstanding of what does it mean to follow Jesus. Either they think, you know, believing in God's existence and keeping some sort of generic moral code and then always comparing yourself to people that are worse than you then, you know, surely God will let me through the pearly gates, right? That's their understanding of the gospel. Moralism, that's not the gospel. That is not a saving gospel. That's a false gospel. Or some weird thing that happened several decades ago. Jesus can be your savior, but not your Lord. This idea of, oh, sure, I just pray a prayer and accept Jesus into my heart, and then I go to heaven and not hell. Who wouldn't say yes to this deal? Does it have any bearing on my life? No? Cool. I'll take this deal, right? That's the understanding of the gospel with so many people here. And so here, where we live, you almost have to weirdly convince people they're not actually a Christian before you tell them the gospel. If you show up and just say, hey, God's a creator, man is sinful, Jesus, you know, made a way for salvation, so if you accept him into your heart or repent, they'll think, I did that when I was three, I'm good. And you're like, okay, why does your life look no different? right he's savior but not lord you have to do this weird contextualization thing if you're in europe you don't have to do that because everybody no one believes god exists where my wife grew up in norway she said jesus is the equivalent to leprechauns she before she was a christian thought it made more sense that god existed but she didn't like that she believed a god existed because it made her weird right but where we live so you see that depending on where you are you're going to have to contextualize The gospel, in the same way that Paul says, To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became weak, in order that I might win some. Okay, so you're gonna have to contextualize to your culture. And also, this is big, contextualize to your day and age. This is huge for, I think, where we live. Evangelism takes into account, should take into account, what is normal in your society. When the Corinthian church is screaming in tongues, what is one of Paul's arguments? Unbelievers are going to come in and think you're crazy, and they're going to leave, right? Don't be unnecessarily weird, okay? That's, that's, that's part of contextualizing to your day. So there's several things that were normal modes, methods of evangelism historically that are weird today, like preaching on a street corner. There's this weird idea that you're not doing real evangelism unless you get a megaphone and interrupt everybody's lunch, uh, when John Wesley and George Whitfield were doing that 300 years ago, that was normal. That's why 8,000 people would gather around and say, I want to listen to this. Do 8,000 people gather around today? No, they say. How do we get away from this crazy person? Because it's no longer normal in our day. Now, if you were to go to Uganda, I have a friend who's a missionary in Uganda, and he says... The greatest evangelism strategy, I put down a speaker, I play loud music, and people just gather. And then an hour later, I get up with a microphone, and I preach the gospel, and people get saved, and it's great. But we don't live in Uganda. We live in McKinney, okay? So don't try and be uh, like George Whitfield. That's no longer a great way to contextualize to our day and age. Same with going door to door. This is true. Every house on my street has a no soliciting sign we don't want you coming. There's one neighbor that has like a, I don't want any. I've already accepted my own God. It's like goes through every possible thing you could say. That's on their front door. When you hear a knock on the door, people either think you're Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. You have to have that long conversation of, no, I'm not the cult, uh, you know, that calls themselves Christianity. I'm real Christianity. Oh, you're mad that I'm, okay, you're slamming the door in my face. Okay. Right. So door-to-door evangelism, 50 years ago, great. Today, not great. Handing out tracts, same thing. There's all these methods that were normal years ago that aren't today. Okay, so I'm not saying, typically, typically the response to this is, wow, sounds like you don't want to suffer for Jesus' name. That's not what I'm saying. It's always going to be weird to tell people to consider their eternal state. Okay, you will have to get weird eventually. I'm saying don't let your unnecessary weirdness get in the way of the gospel. Paul doesn't say, to the Jew, I told him Christ has fulfilled the law. What does he say? To the Jew, I became a Jew. I became as one under the law, though I wasn't really under the law, in order that I might win some. You see that, okay? So don't misunderstand Christian persecution. So if all those are kind of outdated and unhelpful ways of contextualizing, what is kind of today's method of evangelizing? And it's quite simply relationships. The relationships you build in your life will be the primary means by which you evangelize. That is not to say that you won't have the opportunity to share the gospel upon meeting someone, you know, in the first time you meet them on a plane ride or something like that. Or you meet a neighbor and the Lord just swings wide open the door and after you say your name, you have the opportunity to share the gospel. I'm not saying that won't happen. I'm saying the majority of your evangelistic opportunities will happen through the relationships that you build. So that brings us to point number three. Build relationships. Be intentional about building relationships in every sphere of your life. Like with John Stott's quote on Matthew 28, you are the one that God has put in your job, in your neighborhood, in the parks that you go to. God has made your kids friends with kid, uh, other kids, not my kids. Okay? So you are in a position where God wants you so that you can be a witness to his son in your life sphere. You see that? God has you there intentionally. So build relationships with your neighbors, with your co coworkers, with the parents of your kid's baseball team, with people at your gym while you're getting swole. Ask someone where they're from. With your hairdresser. I don't know if those still exist. I think they do. Uh, with, you know, your, if you go to the same restaurant over and over and over again, get to know your waiter's name, the parks you go to, play dates you have. Just be intentional About every time your life intersects with somebody else, build relationships, get to know people's names, their stories, be friendly, Uh, be known as uh, the person in the neighborhood who's, who's hospitable, who's kind, who's forgiving, who's just generous to people, things like that. You don't have to meet someone and evangelize in, you know, instantly. You can build good relationships, right? That doesn't mean, again, I have to give a lot of clarifiers, that doesn't mean every single night needs to be filled with a dinner with a new neighbor or else you're being unfaithful, but it does mean that you should have a kind of urgency about your life where you don't coast. Remember, the God of the universe has you there to preach the only hope of salvation, the gospel of his son. So you don't have to never take a night off or every conversation has to be about the Bible or something like that. You can, again, take a breath. doesn't mean you're being unfaithful, but don't coast. Don't take the, oh, cool, I don't have to do this all the time, I'm never gonna do it then, okay? Realize who you've called to be. You are an ambassador of the savior of the universe. That is who you are if you're a Christian. So carry that identity into your relationships. Number four, as you build those relationships, look for open doors to share the gospel. Open doors for gospel conversations. As you build relationships, steward those relationships. Keep a list of the people that you are evangelizing to, that you are in the process of. I have friends who say, "Yeah, that's my unbelieving buddy." I, you know, I'm reading some random book with him because eventually, in a couple of months, I hope to share the gospel with him. Steward those relationships. Pray for. Those people, and the better you know them, the more you build the relationship, the more you'll be able to see where the spirit might be opening a door. So again, a classic example of this would be C.S. Lewis uh, was best friends with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. C.S. Lewis was an angry atheist. Tolkien was a Christian, and he knew Lewis loved uh, the the great myths of the of the Middle Ages. That he just loved it, absolutely loved it. And so Tolkien, one day on a walk said to him, you know this love, this longing you have for joy in your heart that you say is awakened every time you read one of these myths? Let me tell you why that's there. It's because there's a true myth, with a capital M, behind the myths. There's a true story behind those stories. And what your heart is longing for is something that actually exists. And he leads through that open door and tells him about Jesus and Lewis became a Christian short after that. Tolkien knew his friend, knew the longings of his heart, and was able to kind of guide that to where he could actually preach the gospel. That, you see that kind of open-door opportunity that came through relationships. So as you build relationships, look for those. So some examples. Uh, we live in perhaps the most stressed-out, anxious age ever, even though it's been a time of peculiar peace for a very long time. There will be several opportunities as you build relationships with people and they talk about how stressed they are and how anxious they are because everybody is anxious to talk about, hey, uh, you know, there's this guy I know named Jesus who uh, offers a peace that surpasses all understanding. You don't have to say it like that because that's not helpful. But you do. You know a Savior who offers a peace that surpasses all understanding. You know the only hope that would quiet all anxious hearts. You know the Savior who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. There's your open door. You have the answer to their stress. Okay? In some areas, it might just be something simple like letting people know that you're a Christian or that you go to church and that it means something to you. And then as they observe your life, they should be observing the fruit of the Spirit. And that should stir in them as they don't have the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit doesn't indwell their hearts. a, a just peculiar attraction. Probably going to think it's weird at first, but this drawn-in idea. Uh, I played football for about two seconds in college before being like, I don't love being screamed at this much. Uh, But on that team, though it was a Christian university, I think I was the only Christian. I've thought a lot about it. I'm like, I'm pretty sure. Though everybody would have said they're a Christian. I'm pretty sure I was the only one. And I never, ever, probably from fear, ever said, hey, can I tell you the gospel to anybody on my team? But... Uh, just because I wasn't going to parties every two seconds and all that, <laughs> people were always coming to me and saying, hey, why don't you do this? I'm just curious. And you seem to love the Bible like more than I do. And I don't, you know, I'm a Christian too. That's how they always start the conversations. But it was because it something looked different or just sin was being abstained from in the most general sense that I actually had several, several, several conversations, guys like coming to my uh, dorm room very secretively because I was the weird Christian guy and wanting to have conversations. But that just came from people knowing, you know, something a little bit different. You could be, do that with your neighbors. Your personal testimony, obviously, that's, that's something that's, that's big already. In John 9, we have this story of Jesus healing a blind man, and then the blind man kind of running around, and everybody's like, oh, this is the blind guy, and he's being questioned because he was healed on the Sabbath. Who healed him? He doesn't really know. And then he says this, he answered, whether he is a sinner, talking about Jesus, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that uh, though I was blind, now I see. If you are a Christian, if you've been made, made a new creation, your eyes have been opened. You have a way to evangelize or to get through an open door to evangelism, okay? So there may be times where you can share the whole thing, but probably what's going to be normal as you build relationships is the door will open and there'll be open door to get to evangelism, okay, to get to the whole message eventually. Even if you start off with the, hey, I know you're anxious. I actually, can I tell you why I'm, I'm not? I mean, I know there's a lot of scary things happening right now, but can I tell you, there's a hope that I have that I think uh, would be really helpful or that, you know, you can get through that open door getting to the gospel, which leads us to our next point, number five, proclaim the gospel, So how to? Proclaim it. Fifth point. As you're building relationships, as you have opportunity to proclaim the gospel. There's a famous quote uh, called, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Uh, And it's always attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who did not say it. Uh, All the people who are, you know, St. Francis scholars are like he didn't say this. I don't know why this is so popular, but whoever said it, you, you see the heart there. The heart's good, right? The, the heart is live in such a way that you're always showing that you live for a higher power, right? That'll actually be our next point: living out the gospel. But it is there, sadly, an incorrect quote. Though it's cool, it got a lot of likes on Twitter. Uh, it's wrong. Why? Because Romans ten seventeen: faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if there's no hearing, there can be no faith, okay? You have to proclaim the gospel. So it may be over time, look for those open doors, but it's okay to say to someone, hey, can I I share with you? Do I have your permission to share the gospel with you? You don't have to do the, hi, my name is Jared. Are you a sinner, right? Again, our day and age, just a little weird, okay? I don't know, the Lord could use it, but you have to proclaim the gospel. That's the fifth, number six, live the gospel. Though faith comes through hearing, though that is true, faith comes through hearing, our lives can confirm the message. Okay? You are the salts of the earth. You are a city on a hill. You're meant to be the light of the world. Your life should show the good news that you believe and live by. Okay? J.C. Ryle, a 19th century English pastor, says a holy believer is a walking sermon. There should be something different about the way you live that is uh, drawing people in, though they may hate it, right? So when I, uh, this is actually how I became a Christian. So I grew up in Denton, Texas. I would not have known, I've, I've actually tried to think, did I know a single person who would, have not, who would have said they weren't a Christian? And the answer is no. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I went to church my whole life. Every single human being that I knew would have said, I am a Christian, uh, I did not become a Christian. I would have said that as well. And it wasn't until I met uh, Trevor Ashlock when I was 18, uh, who was a guy coming back from YWAM. That's how I got connected with YWAM. And he's like, he was friends with his sister and they have a lake house. This sounds really sketchy. He go, he, and he asked his sister, do you have some friends that I can like take to our lake house and we can wakeboard and I can tell them about Jesus? And I had gotten a hernia because I was uh, 89 when playing football. And so I was home, stuck, and I got roped in to go into this weird guy's lake house. And he was the first person that I observed getting up in the morning just to pray. And me and all my friends would literally interview him and we're like, okay, you're a Christian. Yes. You know, you can't lose your salvation, right? Yes. Okay. you. Know, you so you're, you're getting up just to read your Bible. Yes. At 6. Yeah, but you know you don't have to, right? You know it's not like it doesn't make you more a Christian. Yeah, yeah. And he's the first person that ever said, "I, I'm just I, I love Jesus and I want to spend as much time in His Word. I want to pray with Him." And we were like, "Huh? What's that like?" Right? The first time I was confronted with, "We're saying the same things. His life is radically different." Than mine. And Christianity, all of a sudden, for me, went from a religion with an abstract God who offers me heaven to a relationship, a fellowship with a personal God who offers me himself. All of a sudden, my world was changed. Something is different about this man. Something's wrong with what I've been saying. I have no joy like this man has. That was actually how I became a Christian, being confronted with someone who actually lived. The gospel. So that's, that's a piece of how to evangelize. Though you will need to preach, your life can confirm the message. There's two, typically, uh, two typical mistakes we make in kind of our lives as Christians. The first is being unnecessarily weird, right? We, we, we evangelize a Christian subculture rather than Jesus, so don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do, you know, like Jesus who would never, right? Uh, that's so we just, you know... Become a Christian, and we can watch God is not dead seven together. And people are like, no thanks, right? It's unnecessarily weird. Again, what we're talking about with contextualizing, getting in the way of the gospel, high, or, you know, like stingy moralism, not representing a savior who goes to the broken to draw them out, goes to the outcast, or we swing the pendulum to the other side and say, nothing is going to be different about our lives because we don't want to be legalists like those people. Both miss how we are meant to live out the gospel, which is quite simply Christ shining through your life. Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Matthew five sixteen in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Okay? So, yes, in a dark world, light will look strange, but it will also be attractive. Okay, letting Christ live through you. This is exactly how uh, the early church, the the witness before uh, Christianity became the leading religion in the empire. This is how the witness moved forward. Uh, Larry Hortado wrote a book called The Destroyer of the Gods, where he talks about there are several things that uh, made Christianity weird to the surrounding Roman society, led to a lot of persecution, led to martyrdom, but also was their strongest witness. The fact that they had a new identity, There was no social structures within this new Christian religion. The rich and the poor worshipped together. They were a community of forgiveness. As they were being killed, not just threats of potentially things coming later in the future, as they were actually being killed, they're forgiving their murderers. Strong witness. They're people of forgiveness forgiving those that killed them. They cared for the outcasts. They were known for hospitality. Again, as uh, babies that were unwanted were literally thrown in the streets, they would adopt them, bring them in, raise them. They would care for the poor. They would flee to the sick to help them. And then their sexual ethic was radical to say sex is within uh, a monogamous uh, marital relationship was radical in their day. So strange, but then that witness went through the Roman Empire like lightning. I, ever, I even read a quote that said, uh, Constantine didn't choose Christianity uh, or chose Christianity as the leading religion of the Roman Empire because it was already the most strong, he could tell, because the witness had been going through for three centuries. If Christ is in you, he will shine through you. John Bunyan, uh, who the, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, this is again how he became a Christian, he, he stumbled upon, thinking he was a believer, stumbled upon these four ladies who were all speaking uh, with one another about the new birth. It says this, I've edited this, uh, I, I, I put it in, in modern language, you would not like to hear it read, how he wrote it. So, if you're a purist, I'm sorry. Uh, though uh, I though thought, sorry, I thought they spoke as if joy made them speak. They spoke with such pleasantness of scripture language and with such appearance of grace in all they said that they were to me as if I had found a new world. At this, I felt my own heart begin to shake, for I saw that in my thoughts about religion and salvation, the new birth never entered my mind. Does your life, as your light shines before men, look as if you are from a new world, a world of hope, a world of peace, a world of love, a world that turns the other cheek, a world that prays, For their enemies, praise for their persecutors, doesn't mock them publicly, doesn't scoff just like the rest of our world. Do you look like your Savior that says, forgive 70 times 7? When hated, pray, bless. Do you look like someone who has been radically brought out of this cynical, hate-filled, loud, screaming world to a world of peace, a world of hope, a world of joy? Live the gospel. Number seven, have expectations For God, I'll go a little bit quicker here, running low on time. Have expectations for God to save. Remember, it's so easy for us to, our eyes drift down and we think it's up to my charisma and my ability to lead this conversation. And when someone actually becomes a Christian, I'm like, man, I am good at this. Rid yourself of all that, those incorrect thoughts. Remember who is doing the saving. Remember who is on mission. Our God is. Our our sovereign king of the universe is the one who is on mission. If you expect failure or fear, it's because your eyes have drifted down to your own efforts. Be biblical evangelists. Have expectation that God will save. Number eight, be a part of the life of the local church. Okay, now it was all flowing up until now. Now it's just random things I'm throwing in. Okay, be a part of the life of the local church. The local church should have a culture of evangelism. By the very nature of us being the people of God, we are a witness to the outside world. Jesus praised this in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me 2,000 years later. That they might all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Your unity, your love for one another, your being a part of the church declares the Father sending the Son. Okay, just who you are is a witness. Second of all, we should be a, have a culture of evangelism here, we we live in a kind of programmatic culture, and so people look for what is the program of evangelism, which typically just teaches people to do evangelism like once a year when they come to that program, rather than just letting it flow out of their heart. Always, uh, Max Stiles again, I've quoted him a couple times. Uh, I read a story he wrote. He was leading an evangelism seminar and uh, with a church, and then somebody asked. Uh, they were in Austin. And he said, uh, many Vietnamese are moving in uh, around the church. How is the church going to reach out? That was the question that was asked to him. Uh, Again, notice, what's what's that looking for? That program. What are you, the church, going to do about these people moving around? How are you going to reach out to them? And this was Max Stiles' uh, response. Uh, It is really not the best thing for the church to set up a program for Vietnamese outreach, but rather for you, person asking the question, to think how you can reach out. I would recommend you learn something about the Vietnamese culture, maybe by learning some greetings in Vietnamese, try try their food and learn something about the struggles they face living in a majority culture. Reach out and invite your friends, uh, invite friends you make to come with you to your homes, small group Bible studies, or to church. Then perhaps some of you should even think about moving into the Vietnamese community with the purpose of commending the gospel among them. You see the radically different, that person didn't like that answer, by the way. Uh, you see the radically different, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to fix this problem? And the answer is, uh, you know, God has given pastors to equip the saints, you, uh, for the work of ministry, so why don't you go do it, right? Like the Bible says you should. And people are like, oh, I'm tired right? So it's a strange thing. So the church should be filled with people, members, you and I, I'm a member of this church too, who just do this because we're Christians. We're witnesses wherever we go. Number nine, watch out for the danger of manipulation. There is a strange uh, allure when preaching the gospel of just wanting numbers. I mean, uh, just to say like, hey, I preached and this person got saved. You know, you want to tell somebody about it? There's this idea of any hint that they're kind of biting on the lure. You're like, sweet. And they're like, does God exist? You're like, you're a Christian. Can we baptize you? You're like, hang on, wait a minute. You haven't even begun to preach the gospel yet. Beware of the danger of manipulating to try and get a number rather than being faithful, being patient, being thorough that people might actually trust in the Savior. It is far more dangerous to convince an unbeliever he is a Christian than to let an unbeliever be very, very clear that he is an unbeliever. Again, like I said, Bible Belt, we have this whole extra step we have to go through of convincing moralists that don't know the gospel, they're not actually a Christian because they go to church every Sunday, right? It's just more tiring, right? It'd be more helpful in the long run and less damning to people if you don't manipulate in your evangelism. Again, trust God. God is the one that saves, which leads us to our final point, number 10, trust God. Jesus will save his people. John 6, this is Jesus talking, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. You want to not stress about your own uh, ability to convert people. Realize you have no ability to convert people, but the king of the universe does. And Jesus says, I will not lose one of all who has been given to me, Secondly, trust God because he's empowered you with his spirit. Again, Acts 1.8. Uh, God is the one who brings the change anyway. We saw this in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And your weakness, when you're very aware of your weakness, that's the point. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.7, we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Right? Our, our weak, brittle selves, this jar of clay with the treasure inside. Why? to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You should have the reaction when someone comes to know the Son, whoa, I thought I did a really bad job, and I kind of stumbled over my words there. I can't believe they trust God. That's the point. It's to show, yes, you're not the one doing it. God is, right? Your weakness is kind of the point. So when you fail, when you fail in evangelism, don't give up. Be encouraged, right? By most of our metrics, Jesus failed. He preaches truth. People leave him all the time. Paul fails, right? He gets beaten when he preaches half the time, or actually more than half the time, right? If, if, we, if we're just gauging based off of the world's version of success, we will not think biblically about evangelism. So when you, when you preach the gospel and some atheist dominates you in some apologetics conversation, Make it, you know, let that fuel you to pray. Make it fuel you to read the scriptures more and just be a good Calvinist, right? Sleep knowing that God is in control. It's not up to you. Keep praying. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I'm skipping over some things in your notes. Charles Spurgeon has a quote that at least is accredited to him where he says, Lord, save your elect and elect some more, right? This idea of you're sovereign and, you know, we'd like you to elect some more people, right? Keep reminding yourself God is the one. Who is in control? God sees you every day when you wake up, every day when you go to work, every park that you go to with your kids, every neighbor you engage with. He sees you. He's the one that has you there as a witness to his son, and you have joined his mission, not the other way around. Okay? So, remember a God who says, I have many people in this city, right? Don't give up when there is failure in evangelism. Lastly, why should we evangelize? I'm sorry, I went, I went long. Uh, why should we evangelize? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandment, depend, commandments depend the law and the prophets. Why should you evangelize? It's the same answer we've given with several weeks. We gave it with missions as well. God is worthy of the praise of his creatures. You evangelize so that God might be glorified. Love of God, him getting the praise that he is worthy of, and love of neighbor. You're going after your neighbor's ultimate joy, which is knowing the living God who is the source of all joy. So why should you do it? Quite simply, love of God, longing for him to receive the glory that he is worthy of, and love of neighbor, longing for them to know that peace that surpasses all understanding to know the God of all love, the God of all joy. That is why we evangelize. Again, I'm sorry. That was I shouldn't do that. It's too loud. Uh, I'm sorry we went long. Uh, I know we promised at the beginning of the semester. Hey, you know in church history when we were like always not having time for your questions, we promise, not this time. Look, I practice this, and I'm like 50 minutes, and then I don't know what happens. Just 10 minutes get extra added. So, I'm displaying my sinfulness before you. I have publicly lied, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. So, uh, let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. If you've got kids uh, in uh, elementary equipping, give them until 10:15. Father, we thank you that uh, this is what your word says, that you are the one that's on mission. You're the one who has many people in this city. You've got many people in McKinney that don't know your son yet. Many people all over this county, many people in this world that don't know your son. Whom are yours? And I thank you. We have the, the, the unthinkable privilege to preach the gospel of your son, to join in your mission, to evangelize, to preach the good news to people. So I pray that you would do something supernatural here, not that we would report great numbers or anything like that that gives us worldly praise, but rather that you would get the praise because people who don't trust in your son would, through our evangelism, come to trust him and that you would be glorified and they would know the God of all joy, the God of all comfort, the God of all peace, the God of all love. We pray that will you do that in us, I'm scared of, of tripping over my words, of looking foolish. I know that's the norm with us. That's why we keep our mouths shut, to not be uh, looked at as foolish or anything like that. I pray that you would banish that. You have given us your spirit. Fill us with boldness that we might continue preaching the word of God. We keep preaching your son and that we would be able to declare, like so many have throughout the centuries... You have added to our number day by day those who are trusting in your Son and being adopted into your family who can also call you Father. So we love you. We pray that you would do that in this place, Lord. In your Son's holy name, amen.